Hello and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they're in need of a legal remedy. And I'm Anthony Pereira, a program coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. Today, we're going to be discussing disabilities and the law. After learning more about the laws offering individuals with disabilities protection, we will discuss the access to justice issues that exist for those individuals and explore where law and policy has room to grow. This episode of Stairway to ATJ is going to cover access to justice issues in disability law. We have Tom Snyder, the founder and board president of the Colorado Poverty Law Project. Um, He'll be joining us in our pro bono corner, Um, but we will feature an interview with Spencer Kotnick, uh, who is a partner at Kotnick & Cohen, and Kevin Williams, who is from the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. First, let's take a listen to the pro bono corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives you a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured or know of a program that should be featured, email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. In this Pro Bono Corner, we have with us Tom Snyder. Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to found the uh, Colorado Poverty Law Project. Sure, thanks for having me uh, today. Um, Personally, I am a litigation attorney uh, with about 27 years of practice experience. Um, For the last 12 years, uh, I've been a partner with QTAC Rock here in Denver. Um, The idea for the Colorado Poverty Law Project really began in about 2005, so quite a while ago, um, and when I was an in-house counsel for uh, what was then Quest Communications. Um, Quest had a large law department, and we were encouraged to do pro bono work. Um, And so at that time, I had some contacts with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and approached them about doing a monthly legal clinic at their uh, site uh, for people who took services from CCH and, you know, the other service providers along the Broadway corridor. Um, And so they said yes. And so I um, gathered a group of lawyers from the law department, along with some uh, lawyers here in town, mostly from Perkins Coie, um, that did work for us. And so we started doing this, this monthly legal clinic, and, um, and we've been doing it ever since. So, so that's about 16 years. And, um, you know, during that time, volunteers have come and gone, you know, we've, we've spread, you know, uh, our, our outreach to other lawyers, but we still do the clinic to this day, we did it yesterday. Um, and we'll handle all sorts of issues at that clinic for um, people who, who come, you know, housing, of course, which is our sweet spot, but also family law issues, credit issues, documentation issues, and, and things like that. So uh, we've been doing, the, the, the Poverty Law Project really grew out of that clinic. And um, um, I, uh, I started uh, the, uh, I, I came to Kutak in 2009, and at that time I've met Blair Canis, who was an associate here, and she was really excited about doing that clinic as well. So she and I together um, were, were managing the clinic. Um, and then we, um, we, we put out, we, we, it, it started becoming more and more of, a, uh, of an administrative problem because we started getting more and more volunteers needed, more and more people attending. And so we put out a, um, uh, an extern request to DU Law School and we got uh, Caitlin Finn, who at that time was a, an extern. So the three of us really were the core people 
kind of running this clinic in the, in the late 2000, you know, 2000 teens there. Uh, and that's when we decided to formally incorporate and, and, and become the Colorado Poverty Law Project. Uh, we realized we needed to, 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 to make this a little more formal, uh, to pay Caitlin uh, a, a part-time salary to run it. And, um, and that's what we did. And so we were still just doing the clinic um, until about 2017, 18. And then um, the volume got so great, we started having to handle referrals in between clinic days, we were getting a lot of housing issues, eviction issues, et cetera. And so we started um, you know, contacting our volunteers and having them take cases outside of the clinic process. And, and the more we did, the more became expected of us. And we realized we needed more staff. And so we started doing um, some fundraising work and, um, and, and became successful in doing that because we saw that you know, there's a real need here for volunteer lawyers, particularly in the eviction, in the eviction space. Um, to, to, to provide these services. So um, today we have uh, um, six uh, full-time lawyers uh, and, uh, and a paralegal. That's in addition to me and um, Caitlin and Blair. And, uh, and our volunteer base has expanded to about 300 lawyers. Wow. Awesome. It's kind of a grassroots um, clinic growing up uh, movement. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, we're, we, we've, we've really enjoyed growing it. And, you know, we, uh, we work closely with Colorado Legal Services uh, because, of course, they are the, you know, incumbent and, and excellent um, provider of uh, low-income um, individuals with legal services. But, uh, you know, they, they've historically been capacity constrained, also constrained a little bit on the types of clients they can take along with the issues that they can handle. So we try to fill in, you know, outside of their kind of area of, of qualifications or eligibility uh, for, for low-income people who can't otherwise maybe qualify for services with the CLS. So that was a, a great history, um, and it sounds like the clinic is still um, alive and uh, operating yesterday. Um, what other programs are currently running through the, pro through the Poverty Law Project? The, the main programs would include, uh, right now, are in the housing space. So we, we have a, an eviction, defense, and prevention uh, program that we do, and uh, the, that, that's both run by uh, staff attorneys uh, and uh, volunteers. And so we'll do eviction defense cases, which uh, of course, you know, with the pandemic become more and more necessary. And then we do housing related issues that, you know, ultimately plant the seeds for eviction if not resolved. So we'll have uh, habitability cases, um, some security deposit cases, uh, rental application fairness cases, immigrant, immigrant protection act cases, uh, fair housing cases like uh, disability discrimination and the source of income discrimination. So that all comes under the rubric of um, eviction defense and prevention. And then we have two other unique programs that I think are fantastic as well. Uh, one is uh, what we call the Mobile Home Initiative, um, and that is run by um, David Velo in our in our group, uh, along with the help of Blair. Um, and uh, they do you know the Mobile Home Park Act is a, is a separate set of laws that's specific to people who own mobile homes, but, you know, rent the land from mobile home parks. And um, there's all sorts of unique issues associated with that uh, paradigm. And, and so we have a special initiative that uh, works with uh, organizations, tenant organizations in those parks to, you know, apprise them of their rights and, uh, and really prevent the sale of those parks to, to corporate interests that, you know, inevitably raise rents. And so we've been real successful in um, in, in avoiding some of that and in keeping a lot of these people housed. So that's, that's 
one program. And then our other program that we're just starting right now is a, what we call our youth services program, um, which is run by uh, Lauren Rafter. Uh, Lauren is an attorney with us that came from the uh, Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. She uh, has dedicated her career to you know, helping um, young adults and youths uh, on their legal issues, and particularly in housing. And so um, Lauren is kicking off a program for us that's going to focus on educating and keeping uh, young adults housed um, and to try to break this cycle of homelessness that often starts you know, at the young adult stage. So um, there's a lot of educational seminars associated with that. There's a lot of working with um, young adults as kind of conduits to into the community um, that we give gift cards to and things like that to try to keep them engaged. And Lauren runs that program. So that's that's pretty much what we're doing. That's awesome. So uh, what counties do, are these programs in? Um, we've historically always focused on the metro area because that's where our volunteer base really is. So Mm -hmm. uh, Denver, Adams, Arapahoe, and Douglas mostly. Um, but 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 you know, recently as we've grown, we've been getting um, you know inquiries and assistance uh, from uh, all over the state. And uh, and then the one upside I think of the pandemic has been the virtual court experience. So we've been able to allow Denver volunteer lawyers to represent people in Pagosa Springs or Lyman or Grand Junction. Colorado Springs, um, and so we hope to see that continue because um, it really it really bridges the justice gap because all the lawyers are here, right, in Denver, um, and uh, but yet the problems are statewide. And so if you want if you want to let if you want to bridge that justice gap, you really need to allow Denver lawyers to appear remotely uh, throughout the state. And uh, so that's what we're working on doing. Yeah, that sounds like a great silver lining from um, a difficult time during this pandemic. Could you also share a recent success story from one of the programs? Sure, sure. Um, we've, we've had so many. I mean, most of the uh, recent success stories have involved people coming to us, you know, on the verge of an eviction because of non-payment associated with COVID. And so we've had, you know, many families that we've been able to stave off the evictions through, you know, submitting the CDC declaration form, you know, intervening in the court case, and then assisting these families in getting rental assistance during that period of time so that they can avoid evictions. And, and we're seeing a lot of that in um, the, you know, the, the mobile home areas and, and the rural areas where a lot of people aren't as aware of you know, the, the CDC moratorium or the availability of rental assistance. So we've served quite a few families um, uh, and prevented eviction for quite a few families, including uh, some families with some uh, dis disabled uh, children and um, adults uh, from being evicted, just being there uh, to, to work them through that process. Um, and we've also, as I mentioned earlier, on the mobile home front, um, we've also successfully intervened in the sales of two, two parks that were going to go to corporate interests where the tenants had, had um, um, formed together coalitions that were working with financiers to come together to present a park offer, which under the Mobile Home Park Act has to be considered. And they weren't being considered. And in both these cases, we were able to intervene and stop the closings of the park in order to give uh, these, these tenant associations the opportunity to present and negotiate their offers. So uh, we were excited about being able to do that as well. Awesome. You mentioned earlier um, how many volunteers you use and that you guys kind of use volunteers throughout your programs. So how do our listeners get involved? Uh, we would love uh, for them to get involved. I mean, the Poverty Law Project really is 
the sum of its parts. It's not me, it's not Blair, it's not Caitlin or Shannon McKenzie, who's our deputy executive director. It's, it's, it's really the volunteers that we've had over time and we're always looking for, for more. Um, and we train them, we do quarterly CLEs, we support them when they take cases. Um, and they're truly what sets us, you know, uh, 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 sets us up for success. So you can get information on us at our uh, website, just copopertylawproject.org, or you can just Google Colorado Poverty Law Project, um, or you can email me at uh, thomas.snyder uh, at kitakrock.com, or our Deputy Executive Director, Shannon McKenzie, who's shannon at copopertylawproject.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I love talking about the project. All right. So life is hard, but it can be more difficult if you're going through life with a disability. Thankfully, there are laws and policies out there meant to try and level the playing field. But that sometimes means you have to go through the legal system to actually exercise these rights. This podcast is about access to justice, and in this case, it means we, we will be discussing how people can actually access their rights through the legal system. Not only will we discuss the laws that protect people with disabilities, we will also dig into the values that animate this important work, and hopefully help share some stories about the impact this work has on individuals. First, I would like to introduce Spencer Kontnick, and if that name sounds a little familiar, it's probably because he's my brother, and we have the same last name. Spencer is a partner and founder of the law firm Kontnick & Cohen, which specializes in disability discrimination cases. He grew up in Colorado and loves all that Colorado has to offer. Spencer is hard of hearing. He was born with a hearing loss in his right ear and later lost his hearing in his left ear when he was hit in the head with a baseball bat when he was six years old. Spencer attended the University of Colorado Boulder, where he majored in political science. He went on to work for a United States Senator before deciding to attend law school. Spencer graduated from the University of Denver Law School in 2014 and set up his own practice in 2017. Spencer's practice focuses primarily on employment and civil rights litigation. He is especially passionate about working, with disability, working on disability discrimination cases. This past year, Spencer was recognized by the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association for his work on a civil rights case involving a deaf individual who was denied equal access to necessary medical treatment. So Spencer, as an attorney with a disability, what challenges do you face? Uh, Mia, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a bunch of challenges that you know, attorneys with disabilities face. For me specifically, I think the biggest thing is just the lack of awareness in the community about what it means to have a disability and the resources that are available to individuals with disabilities. Um, many, many people um, and attorneys included perceive individuals with a disability as, you know, less capable um, or burdensome having to find ways to accommodate the individual or work with the individual is often something that people don't want to deal with. And oftentimes they're just unaware of the resources that are available to them to help accommodate that individual. I think for me, it's ironic because the unwillingness that you face sometimes when you see 
when you encounter somebody who is resistant to accommodating an individual with a disability, uh, that can actually be the, a big advantage that we have in litigation because people will underestimate or not really expect, um, you know, what the what their counterpart is capable of. Okay, so kind of to follow up on some of that, um, what do you wish people knew about hearing impairments or um, how to interact with people who are deaf or hard of hearing? I think, you know, the biggest thing is that people um, need to evaluate the individual. And this is kind of the, the crux of the ADA and the other anti-discrimination laws that we'll talk about later. Um, you know, but hearing loss is a spectrum. You know, some people can't hear at all. They have no hearing. Some people have minor hearing loss. Some people can read lips. Some people cannot. Um, and everybody has to understand that you have to look at the specific individual and figure out their circumstances to understand what you need to do to accommodate that person. For me, for example, when I'm speaking one-on-one -on -one with you right now, or if I'm, you know, sitting in a deposition, I'm usually able to hear pretty well because the... There are a limited number of speakers and it's in a controlled environment. Um, but if I'm in a big environment where there's a lot of space and there's a lot of people, such as the courtroom, then it's really critical that I have, you know, a cart interpreter or other accommodations to help me out. But that's what I have. And other people need entirely different accommodations. Some people require sign language interpreters, even if they can read lips, that doesn't mean that they're picking up on everything. They still need a sign language interpreter to be able to understand the full context of the communication. And that's particularly important when we're talking about, you know, understanding and communicating in a legal setting. Before I turn it over to Anthony, Spencer, you used a word cart. What does that mean? Thank you. Uh, so a cart interpreter, it's a real-time uh, translation service. So what it means is, as I'm speaking, you, someone will be typing up the, um, you know, what I'm saying, and it will, it will appear on the screen, or sometimes you have a separate screen. It really just depends on, you know, where you're at and how you're using it. But it, it allows the person who is receiving the information to read what is being said real time. Thank you, Spencer. Um, I think the individual approach is, is important to keep in mind going forward. We also have with us Kevin Williams. Um, Kevin Williams is the uh, Director of Civil Rights Legal Program for the CCDC. The CCDC is the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, um, to help you with the alphabet soup here. <laughs> um, since Kevin became a quadriplegic in 1986 and finished his undergraduate degree at the University of Colorado, Denver, um, he did that before going to law school, obviously. Uh, Kevin graduated with honors, um, including the prestigious award of the Order of uh, St. Ives from the University of uh, Denver College of Law. Um, that was in 1996. He interned at Disability Law Colorado under a great friend and colleague now, um, Michael Birkenskin. Excuse me. Um, and then he joined the CCDC in 1997 to start helping enforce laws um, designed to ensure people with disabilities have an equal opportunity to do kind of what everyone else takes for granted. 
Um, Kevin litigates most areas of law protecting civil rights and people with disabilities, including the ADA, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, the Fair Housing Amendments Act, um, Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, and other related federal and state laws. Um, he's been active uh, in the Colorado and as well as federal legislation impacting people with disabilities. He's presented at conferences and seminars um, and has published on the topics of disability rights. Um, thank you for joining us, Kevin. And you've lived in Colorado now for some time. It seems like about over 30 years. How is Colorado when it comes to being a good or bad place for people with disabilities to live? There's a bit. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and Spencer as well, we've uh, gotten to know each other. So uh, it's great to be uh, sharing time together with you. But uh, yes, uh, I moved to Colorado in 1990. Uh, I was injured in 86. And the irony of it is, I moved to Colorado, uh, Denver in particular, in large part because it was a great place for people with disabilities, especially my kind of disability, to live. Uh, home health care services were far better. I was living in South Carolina when I had my accident. The long story where I grew up and how I ended up where, but you know, anyway, I got to Colorado and I'm not going anywhere because I love it too. <laughs> Um, and so I moved here because it was such a great place for people with disabilities to live. And what did I end up doing? Uh, suing people for not providing <laughs> people with disabilities what they need. So there, there's a bit of an ironic uh, twist to that. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. So um, getting jumping right into the interview, um, this is a question that we tend to like to ask all of our guests um, because I think there's a lot of different definitions out there. So in a sentence or two, what does access to justice mean to you? We'll start with you, Spencer. Yeah, you know, I, I think access to justice means probably something different um, to anyone based on their life circumstances. Um, and especially in this context, you know, based on the individual disability that, you know, an individual may have. Um, you know, I think for me, in this context, it really focuses on ensuring that everyone, um, including individuals with disabilities, has the same opportunity to access our legal justice system and courts. Um, not necessarily prevail, but have that same access that other individuals with um, disabilities have. I, I think it's a very broad net. It encompasses you know, being a party to a case, being a witness in a case, um, even a potential juror, or mm -hmm. even just, you know, a spectator who wants to know what's going on, um, you know, in our legal system and making sure that, you know, there aren't any barriers that prevent anybody from having that, having that right. How about you, Kevin? What does access to justice mean to you? I, I certainly agree with everything that Spencer has said. And I do think that those of us who practice in the area of uh, disability rights law may have a you know slightly different perspective on access to social uh, justice than than a lot of other people do, simply because it does mean so many different things. And w one thing to keep in mind, unlike other suspect classes under the law, sorry for the window, 
but you know, race, gender, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Disability covers, I mean, Spencer uh, deals with a hearing impairment. I'm a quadriplegic, so I'm limited in the use of uh, all four limbs. I can't walk, I use a motorized wheelchair. Often jurors find the flashing lights on my wheelchair much more interesting than what I have to say. Uh, but in any event, access to social justice, uh, from our perspective, has a lot to do with ensuring that each individual participant in the process, you know, the legal process is everything from uh, filing a complaint with uh, fair housing, uh, you know, to, to actually trying a case. Uh, in federal court or going up on appeal, any of those things. And Spencer ticked off sort of the, the you know, kind of the list of, of participants, but access to social justice means in very many ways, accommodation. I mean, you know, I, I can't deny uh, the use of the, the word equality for people with disabilities often, most often involves doing something differently than it does for everyone else. Whereas most, you know, generally when you think of equality, you're thinking treating everybody equally means treating them the same. Well, in order to treat people with disabilities the same, often you have to do something different. And I mean, the simplest example I always use is the accessible parking space. You know, uh, I don't have equal access to parking if I can't get my ramp down and get out of my van. So, you know, that, that's an easy one, but Spencer may not have access to, uh, to be able to participate in the, in, the, in the legal system if he doesn't have access to part, as he described before. Um, you know, I've had many deaf clients who, you know, are, are, are jailed, uh, which is a horrible experience for anybody under any set of circumstances. And if they can't hear, and they need a sign language interpreter, you know, it can be absolutely horrific, but there's no way that they can have access to that same legal system without that sign language interpreter. So it means many things to many different kinds of people with many different kinds of disabilities. Kevin, I think that's such an important point um, that, you know, disability law covers such a variety of people. Um, one more definite, definitional question before we get into the rest of the interview. Can um, you guys explain what person-first language means? Kind of what is it and why is it important? You know, I think per person-first language really emphasizes the individual and the dignity of the individual that you're talking about rather than emphasizing the disability. Um, so an example of that would be rather than saying Spencer is hearing impaired, you can say Spencer has a hearing loss. And so what you're doing is you're focusing on me and my ability and not the negative, uh, you know, connotation that comes with the word, you know, impairment. Or, you know, maybe in Kevin's case, instead of saying he's wheelchair bound or, you know, ah. even, <laughs> or even, or even more, you know, condescending language, like cripple or something like that, you say Kevin needed the wheelchair, you know, and it's a, it's a very um, easy way to emphasize the person rather than the disability when talking about that individual. I guess I would, I would add to that, but a couple of things. 
one is that uh, person first language is wonderful, but would even saying individual with a disability, as opposed to say disabled individual, uh, I don't know about you, Spencer, but you know, when I've got a page limit on a brief, it takes up a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of space. Uh, so, you know, if you say an individual who is a quadriplegic, oh, good heavens. I mean, you've lost a, a page and a half right there. One of the other things I've found, um, and I do think, I think this is kind of important, and the person first language is very important to, to many people. Language and how you describe disability is it, it, like any other, again, suspect class, any other group, fill in the blank. The language is important. I mean, do I call my friend African-American? Do I call my friend black? Do I, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I have found, for example, um, I work with, oh, good heavens, talk about alphabet soup. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I do some work with the Colorado Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing and Deaf Blind. I got to sound each one of those letters out in my head when I say it. But in any event, uh, we had a conversation about this. And, you know, so I say, uh, you know, in the, I, I'm not deaf. I'm not hearing impaired at all. Uh, I just can't walk. But uh, I can certainly talk. <laughs> um, and so we had a conversation, and I said, "So individual with deaf, right? That's you know that that that's what, you know individual who is deaf or individual yeah." And I got essentially shouted down. A lot of folks in the deaf community, and and they're folks who associate with what they call the big D deaf community. Somebody who's been born. I was born deaf. Uh, their first language is, for example, American Sign Language. They would rather be called deaf than an individual with deafness or an individual with a hearing, you know, impairment. So, you know, language is complex. And, and when you think about it, let, let's think about the, let's just look at the word disability. What does that mean? Ability, what's the prefix dis mean? That means Spencer and I can't do stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm happy to sue anybody. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you mentioned like Spencer's a lawyer and you mentioned and Spencer was talking about highlighting people's accomplishments and things like that. So I was just kind of for our audience. Can I know we did the little introductions of each of you before, but can you describe the work that you do and the kinds of areas of law that you guys practice in regularly? Um, let's see, uh, Anthony, you had, you had mentioned the areas of life practicing. The Americans with Disabilities Act is broad. It covers employment. It covers uh, government services. It covers private places of public accommodation. It covers uh, communication, telecommunications. And then there's a section called miscellaneous, just to inform you that uh, I think it's transvested Ism, I can't even say the word right, is not a disability. Who knew, right? But there it is, just in case you were, uh, you know, didn't, didn't know what a disability was. It's there in the law. So we need part five. In any event, I spend most of my time um, dealing with public entities, government entities, and that can be, I mean, that is such a huge and broad area. It's everything from, I mentioned, uh, you know, my deaf clients. Uh, we've done a lot of work with, um, for example, sheriff's offices. Uh, definitely a law enforcement. 
I mean, that's a huge problem area. Uh, you know, if somebody gets arrested and they just simply refuse to write an interpreter. Uh, we have, I don't watch what I say publicly, but I sometimes call them recidivist defendants. Um, you know, uh, Regional Transportation District uh, has been on the receiving end of our uh, of our litigation uh, for not providing accessibility to people who use wheelchairs, or at least that's what we've alleged uh, in our in our cases. Uh, so, Regional Transportation District is something called a special purpose district. They're sort of quasi governmental. Uh, we might sue you know schools. Schools are obviously. Uh, Although that gets tricky because it might fall into the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a whole other complex area of law. Uh, I also work under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, often ties together with governmental entities. Section 504 uh, is actually preceded the ADA and uh, 1973. Um, and what it is is any recipient of federal financial assistance uh, cannot discriminate on the basis of actually handicap. I think it still uses that word, transfer, if I'm not mistaken. Fair Housing Act, you know, so we got, there you go with language again, um, you know. But uh, so there we are, you know, you always have to drop that footnote, uh, disability and handicap being the same thing and construed uh, the same way and so forth. So. Uh, I practice in the, well, I see the Fair Housing Amendments Act. The Fair Housing Act was amended to include disability. And uh, I'll, I'll just say uh, that one, I think in very many ways is quite limited. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which my organization recently uh, worked uh, to have amended. We've actually amended it a couple times. It's try to expand it, beef it up. Uh, if your state law provides something greater than what the federal law requires, then the ADA, for example, says the state law trumps the federal law. So beef up your state laws whenever you can. Uh, you know, so there's there's the, those kinds of legislative efforts as well. Um, those are kind of the I guess the broad based areas that I practice in. Uh, does that answer your question? And now we hand it off. It does. Thank you. And yeah. No. I mean, I practice. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of similarities that Kevin does. I think he touched on. You know, the broad scope of the ADA. It applies to employment, public services, public accommodations, telecommunications. I mean, in each area has its own regulations and the way it's been interpreted. So, you know, somebody could practice entirely within ADA employment law. They could specialize in that and that could be, you know, one area of practice. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of coverage here when you're talking about the ADA and, you know, the other laws that Kevin mentioned. You also have Section 504, um, which applies to, you know, recipients of federal financial assistance. You have the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Um, you also have the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen, I think, is, you know, starting with Section 504 back in the ADA then, or back in the day, then the ADA, 
than the amendments to Section 504 and now the ACA, we've just seen the scope of what types of entities are required to comply with general non-discrimination provisions expand. Um, it was originally a more narrow scope and that scope has just broadened uh, more and more as we learn more about what it means to accommodate individuals with disabilities. So I think, you know, the, the one difference here really between Kevin's practice and my practice is I think we do a lot of, um, we do a lot of employment work as well. So we work with individuals with disabilities who, you know, have been terminated or seeking accommodations from their employer, um, or even individuals who have maybe been, um, you know, held back. They haven't been able to have the same opportunities um, or have the same chances to advance within their company um, as others without disabilities. So, you know, that's that's kind of a niche in terms of something that we handle that, you know, Kevin doesn't. But outside of that, I think we cover a lot of the a lot of the same types of lawsuits. Maybe not specifically what each law does um, one by one, but can you kind of walk us through the process of um, a person trying to access their rights? What what does their story look like? And perhaps we could look at the ADA because I know there's a lot of laws. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just focus on one. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends on the context again. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll just distinguish the differences between, you know, the ADA and the CADA, which is the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Um, you know, the ADA, that's federal law. Um, you know, so the application of the ADA is um, in a lot of ways more broad. And the CA, the CATA, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, is basically the Colorado equivalent of the ADA. And the idea behind it is that it's designed to um, provide more remedies to individuals with disabilities, but that is not always the case. So, for example, if you have a public accommodation discrimination case under federal law, you can just go ahead and file a lawsuit. Um, you know, there's issues like standing and a lot of other issues that you have to address, but you can just go ahead and file a lawsuit. Under the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, you have a very narrow period where you can file a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Division. And, you know, the remedies under Colorado may be more, but there's different specific procedures that you have to file. Generally speaking, I think under federal law, you can usually just go ahead and have direct access to the, to the courts and that's here in an employment context where you have to file a charge of discrimination first. Uh, but Colorado has pretty strict standards in terms of filing charges of discrimination before you are even allowed to file a lawsuit. Boy, just talking about the ADA, it really doesn't matter. It sort of goes back to what I said earlier that, you know, I mean, in order to provide equality to people with disabilities, you do have to treat them differently. So. I think one of the broad-based areas that, that really, I, I had a professor in uh, law school, someone I respect a great deal, Bill Bafke, uh, who taught a course, he was an adjunct professor, taught a course called Disability Law. One of the hardest courses I ever took in one of my favorite classes for somewhat obvious reason. Uh, although 
at that time, I didn't know I was going down this road, but you know, they all find their way, fortunately. Uh, um, and uh, what, what Bill said, and I thought it was an interesting, I thought it was interesting, and I've, I've thought about it many times over the years, is that every, he said, he, he essentially, I'm not going to say perfectly, and, and sorry, Bill, but uh, he said uh, the ADA is basically, in all of its permutations and variations, about reasonable accommodation. The whole law, every bit, every piece and parcel, and no matter what you're looking at, and what regulation, and how you're going about accommodating a person with a hearing disability or providing access to somebody using it, it's all about reasonable accommodation. And I get, you know, I've gotten to think about that a lot over the years. I'm writing a paper right now. Um, and uh, and I and I and I've given it some consideration. And there's what I call on-off. I call it light switch discrimination. Uh, you're black, so I don't want black people working in my establishment. Therefore, I'm not going to hire you. I think people with disabilities face that same kind of discrimination. The on-off switch. You know, I don't want somebody who looks like you working in my place. You know or talks like you, or wheels like you, or maybe uh, it's inconvenient for me to provide you because of your uh, hearing impairment, uh, some sort of accommodation to be a juror. I mean, that is an example of the kinds of things, you know, that, that come up. Uh, that might be on-off discrimination. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it might also be that Bill's right in every form of discrimination against people with disabilities involves some aspect of reasonable accommodation. And I said, Bill, you know, how do you, how do you figure that uh, accessibility to a building? Understand the ADA was passed in 1990, and uh, that's when I moved to Colorado, and you know, that's I, that's when I finished my undergraduate degree and went on to law school. I said, Bill. How do you figure that you know building a building? Um, what's that got to do with reasonable accommodation? I think a reasonable accommodation, changing the way something is done, to enable, for example, somebody with a hearing impairment to participate in a conversation. And he said, "Well, nah, yeah, it's obviously a reasonable accommodation. I mean, you've got to build a ramp. You've got to change the way you would normally you normally build stairs." Because God knows it's much easier for everyone to use stairs than it is to use the ramp at my front door. And especially when you're moving a washer and dryer, but don't get me started. Uh, so, you know, so it's just something to think about. I mean, is, you know, what does discrimination mean under the ADA or any of these laws? They're all interrelated uh, in, that, in that respect. Uh, some, either reasonable accommodation or what's known as, and Spencer and I deal with this all the time, reasonable modifications to policies, practices, and procedures. Um, and that's a big one. That is, I mean, changing policies is half the battle. Okay. Enforcing those policies, after uh, 24 years of doing this, I've learned that you can have all the policies in the world and those are pieces of paper. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, what Kevin said, I think just, it really rings home. I mean, 
you know, a big part of the battle is getting, you know, getting people to adopt policies that provide reasonable accommodations, modifications, whatever it may be. But, you know, oftentimes what it is, is you will see companies or, you know, government entities or whatever they may be, they will, you know, bow over and say, okay, here's the new policy, we signed it. But it's actually the implementation and the application of that policy, because, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, just throw our hands up and be like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna put this new policy in place. And it's another thing to, you know, actually implement it and meaningfully say, we're gonna, we're gonna apply these new procedures going forward to make sure that you know, we don't see this kind of discrimination again. I think um, this conversation has been great, seeing the importance of policy and enforcement. And um, a theme that's really emerging is that uh, context matters, right? Um, but kind of going back to those big laws, we have the ADA, we have CADA, IDEA, Section uh, 504. What's missing? Um, what legislation uh, needs to be passed still? I, I mean, I can just run off the top. I mentioned the Fair Housing Amendments Act earlier. I mean, of course, I deal with you know wheelchair access is, is both lived experience and certainly a part of my work. Single-family homes. How much of human activity takes place in single-family homes? Guess what, America? They don't have to be accessible under any law, under any circumstance. There are a handful of exceptions where some cities have adopted what they call uh, visitability ordinances, that's great. I mean, I, it gives you one, you know, if you build some new housing, gives you one uh, level access uh, area and a bathroom that's essentially usable, you know, you can get in, uh, meets the Fair Housing Act standards or whatever. But even that, to be able to visit my friends and my relatives and whatever, I mean, I have a lot of friends who use wheelchairs because they got a big deck and a you know, a completely accessible house and, you know, you come over and hang out and have a good time. But no, so the exclusion of people from such an enormous amount of social life mm -hmm. exists right there. There's no law that says that single family homes have to be accessible. Yeah, and on that note, um, you mentioned just kind of like daily life. It, are there any changes that, that need to happen from a societal or cultural perspective? as well, besides just the law? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really just, um, you know, the awareness aspect and the understanding of, you know, what it means to accommodate an individual with a disability and understanding how that interacts, you know, with everything that you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, Kevin was talking about how important enforcement is. And, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with that, but the problem is that, you know, you have a company and, you know, the company's goal here is to make as big a profit as they can. So they, they may recognize that, okay, there's some potential liability if we do not provide, you know, ASL interpreters for someone who is deaf um, or for a deaf individual. And so they put that policy in place, but when they get trained, the regional manager is trained to say, you know, how am I going to increase my bottom line? So this policy of providing, you know, ASL interpreters is conflicting with this, you know, regional manager who is incentivized to drive profit. 
And if this regional manager doesn't have any sort of understanding or awareness of how the ADA and other disability laws work, you know, him or her or, or whoever it is, they're going to be incentivized to say, well, an interpreter costs money. I'm going to make more money and my bonus is going to be bigger if I don't provide an interpreter for this individual. And so, you know, I think in terms of, you know, a social aspect, it's really understanding, you know, the importance of these laws, why they matter, and, you know, creating more awareness within the community, even the legal community, about what it means to really provide those accommodations and what their obligations are to provide those accommodations. Okay, I have to ask, Britney Spears is all over the media right now. Um, but I think the reason that people are really reacting to her is because of the lack of autonomy she's been given. Can you guys speak about the value of autonomy and how important it is to the disability rights community? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, the ability for me to do what I need to do, well, actually, I, okay, this leads me down the road of uh, the concept of a least restrictive environment, for example. Um, so uh, that's a term that is used uh, uh, to apply to um, if a, say, a, a government entity, doesn't really matter, private entity, and so on, uh, is going to provide services to a person with a disability, they have to do it in the least restrictive environment. What does that mean? That means the person with a disability must be able to interact with people who do not have disabilities to the greatest extent possible. Uh, so you can't lock me up in a nursing home and throw away the key. You can't do that. Uh, so you've got to find a way to provide services like home and community-based services so I can have attendants who come to my house and help me out and live at home to allow me the autonomy to have my own home and uh, uh, where I have attendants who come and work for me and help me get out of bed in the morning and I hire and fire them myself and it's a wonderful world. Uh, Medicaid helps pay for them. Uh, so anyway, that, that's just one example. And, and so, you know, being able to just join the rest of the world, be a part of the rest of the, you know, the community. Uh, I mean, in, in one way that's a, been a problem since the passage of the ADA, just as an example, is that you know the employment rates of people with disabilities have not gone up significantly. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe Spencer, you want to jump in there and talk about why that's so, or you know what what some of the causes are. You know, one of one of the big things that her case has done that I think is really important is it highlights. You know, a lot of times we think about disabilities and uh, physical manifestation of those disabilities, whether it be, you know, a physical disability, um, you know, a visual disability, uh, inability to hear, whatever it may be. And I think there is a lack of emphasis on mental health. And I think that that is actually answering one of your earlier questions, that that is an area where the law and really, um, you know, social justice is really lacking because there's a lack of understanding about how, um, you know, mental disabilities affect people on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's something that, 
you know, has really driven people to, um, you know, really focus and be passionate about the Britney Spears case because she certainly has, you know, she's had her troubles, but, you know, the question there is whether she has the autonomy to make her own decisions. And, you know, I think a lot of people feel very strongly that she does. And I don't, I don't really do conservator work, but I know that there are a lot of people in the disability rights community who do, and they have very strong opinions about the laws that surround the conservatorship. But I think it, it really is bringing to the surface the importance of emphasizing not only physical disabilities, but you know mental disabilities, and making sure that we work with individuals to understand you know that mental disabilities, just like my hearing, are going to be a sliding scale. Everybody falls somewhere on the spectrum, and it's not it's not a one size fits all. You have to look at the individual and assess the individual. We've discussed um, the value of you know taking an individualized approach to each um, scenario, each circumstance, um, and we've talked about the value of autonomy. Um, what other values help animate your work as a disability law attorney? Um, I think a long history of uh, of through ignorance, through ignorance. I mean, some hatred, um, some, I mean, I, you know, let's, let's talk about Nazi Germany. People with disabilities were the first to go, all right, uh, before the Holocaust and before, you know, I mean, we are not considered the, uh, uh, in fact, Hitler used the term useless eaters. I'm not, I don't speak German fluently, but, uh, you know, so there you go. Uh, we, we I, I think people perceive a lot of people with disabilities, including myself. I use a lot of resources. Um, you know, I, I'm on a work incentive program that allows me to make some money and live in this lavish luxury that I do and hang out in fancy bars like uh, whatever with uh, Spencer every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we won't we won't name those special establishments but in any event <laughs> so uh it allows me to make some money but i still i still use medicaid uh you know to pay for my services because right off the top i mean home health care would be 70 dollars. so you know off the top of my salary so cut that off the top of your salary tell me how you're doing you know if you if you and by the way, there's no private healthcare insurance plan other than Medicaid that pays for long-term home healthcare service. So there you go. I mean, once again, why are a lot of people with disabilities not employed? Hmm. You know, it kind of gives you some indication. But um, I think that uh, I really do. I mean, I think a lot of it is there is a hatred. There is a you know, you're not worthy. I mean, you become disabled, you are not as good at it. So, you know, you don't have, you don't measure up. And when resources become more scarce, when society, you know, goes into a tailspin economically and so on and so forth, uh, we're not looked upon with high regard. I mean, payment for any kind of accommodation it goes out the window, you know, that's sort of number one on the agenda of things that's not going to happen uh, when things are not going well. 
I mean, I, I agree with Kevin. I think, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, a sense of frustration, even hatred that some individuals have or kind of view individuals with disabilities. And then I think there's, it's a combination of also ignorance um, and not, not knowing what, you know, resources are available to them. I think, you know, treating individuals in the medical context and especially uh, deaf individuals who rely on sign language is a very good um, example of that because you have people who get into the field and their goal is to oftentimes to help people. They want to, you know, be able to provide services to people to help them overcome an injury or, you know, an old age to help them, you know, live the best life that they can. And then when it comes to, you know, interacting with an individual who is that you know, suddenly that individual becomes a problem patient. They become somebody who they don't want to deal with because they can't communicate with them because they don't have an ASL interpreter and, you know, kind of shift their focus 180 degrees instead of saying, okay, I got into this, you know, profession with compassion and, you know, the desire to help. They're like, I don't want to deal with this person. They're frustrating. I can't talk to them and suddenly their mindset just shift 180 degrees. So I think that's, you know, a great example of how, um, you know, the, the, what you need to be aware of and how um, individuals with disabilities really get a raw deal. And then, you know, one, one other thing Kevin mentioned, and I know this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's, you know, important to just, briefly mentioned is that a big area that is lacking right now is really, you know, access to healthcare and making sure that, you know, disabilities are incorporated into healthcare plans in this country, whether it be paying for hearing aids, whether it be paying for medication that people need. I think that's a, a huge area that we are lacking and that needs, um, you know, some serious development. So we mentioned that earlier, and I just wanted to throw that nugget in there. Absolutely. And, we, and we've been talking about um, the hatred, the ignorance as well, and, and some of the gaps and things like that. Are there any programs, laws, or efforts that you guys are aware about that are trying to address some of these gaps and some of this information? It, you know, I, I, I love the question because I find it so frustrating. Um, Spencer, you've probably dealt with this too, which is well, why don't you all just come to us and explain to us what it is that you need and tell us I, what we can do for people with disabilities. And by the way, your 24 years of law practice and all the knowledge that you gained in the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals arguments and the briefing and so on, we don't want to pay you for that. I mean, you should just tell us because it helps you. It helps you to tell us how to build an accessible building. And it helps you to tell us how to provide appropriate accommodations for people who have hearing impairments. And so just come and tell us. Well, guess what? We live in a society where you know things don't always work that way. Now, do I think that there are organizations that do do that? I mean, yeah, part of the mission and purpose of my organization, the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, 
is to provide education and we do do that but you know we live in america folks ain't nothing free <laughs> uh there's no such thing as a you know free education or a free lunch so uh it, and the truth is i mean you know if we get a great a grant in uh for say our civil rights legal program to uh to go out and do training throughout the state of Colorado on, oh, I don't know, building uh, accessible transportation vehicles. We're happy to do it, but you know, I mean, everything, everything, everything costs something. So that that's part of the hard part. Uh, Spencer, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, I think people, um, you know, especially, and, and when I say people, I think especially companies, because you know, when we're talking about accommodations, um, oftentimes you're dealing with companies or governments or corporations or whatever they may be. You know, for them, it's not a priority until they have a lawsuit. And then when they have a lawsuit, their priority is to avoid future lawsuits, not accommodate the individual. It's, you know, we need to find a way to, you know, put a Band-Aid on this or make it look like we're providing the accommodations that we need so that we don't have to deal with Kevin again, or so that we don't have to deal with Spencer again. I mean, that's kind of the mindset that those, you know, companies have. And, you know, like Kevin said, I mean, you know, they come to us and they say, well, why don't you just explain what it is that this individual needs or what it is that you need to, you know, move and advance, you know, disability rights forward. And it's, you know, well, the answer why is, you us? yeah, like, <laughs> and the answer is, well, I mean, they, they they're never going to come to us. Uh, there are a ton of organizations out there who, you know, are set up either as nonprofits or for profits or whatever it may be that, you know, work to help ensure that individuals with disabilities get the accommodations that they need. And, you know, the reality is, is that we can't force this on those companies unless, you know, we have a situation where a lawsuit arises. They need to seek us out. I, promise you if a company picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, Spencer, we want to rework our policies to ensure that, you know, deaf and hard of hearing patients are getting equal access to our facilities. I'm going to be like, great, let's do it. Let me know when you're free. But that phone call doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, we like to wrap up on a positive note. So um, we're going to ask each of you to share a success story. Spencer, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most recently, um, you know, we we had a lot of success in a lawsuit that we filed um, against a long-term care facility here in Colorado that was owned and managed by another company um, that oversaw facilities throughout the country. Um, and it was a very important piece of litigation in this context because we were able to hold the management company and the ownership company on the hook uh, for not providing sign language interpreters to a deaf patient. And kind of going back to what Kevin and I were discussing, it was, it, it was great because the company ended up having to, and ended up did, uh, ended up changing their policies at every single one of their facilities throughout the country. Um, enforcement, you know, we'll do the best we can. I think we've got some language in there that will help with that going forward. Um, you know, but it was it, it was a big win in the sense that, you know, the ADA Section 504 um, 
and the ACA will all help to apply to a company that owns a place of public accommodation or a recipient of federal financial assistance. And that, that has some real implications for, you know, companies that are setting up, you know, skilled nursing facilities throughout the country or really any, any type of corporation that is trying to delegate their responsibility under the ADA. You can't do that. You have to comply. You have to make sure all the companies that, you know, you work with comply. And Kevin, can you share a story? We've had absolutely no zigzags whatsoever. <laughs> no, <I just, laughs> uh, you know, there are a lot, there are many, and then, like I said, there are recidivist defendants. Um, but, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was just talking about RTD, for example. Anyone who rides light rail trains, if you've, if you've seen the uh, wheelchair seating sections, uh, RTD took all of its trains remodeled the old ones, the new ones that it purchased, it put in areas, the areas that were there were just almost impossible for people in wheelchairs to use, created all kinds of big problems. And then you have a lot of folks who want to carry, you know, their entire life onto the light rail train. And I mean, you know, there's reasons for that. I don't want to, I don't want to demean the causes behind that. But um, in any event, you know, and whatever these, you know, these, uh, <laughs> these, these quadruple wide strollers and things that they, you know, of course, first place they want to go is the wheelchair seating area. But uh, anyway, you just, if you look at those areas, I mean, they're, they're super wide, super big, mm -hmm. that was a good settlement, I, you know, and we're proud. I mean, that's just a simple, it's kind of funny because my family will come to town. I, I have a van adapted for me to drive and drive around town and I'll say, yeah, we did that one, you know, we mm. did that one, we made that one. So um, we've done a lot of those. We've certainly done a lot of policy changes that in some cases have lasted and some cases have not. I would just say enforcement, ensuring that the policies are being enforced is where we got to go from here. I mean, you know. Thanks for this. Great. Thank you yeah, guys both Yeah, thank you guys so much. both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for having us. I really appreciate it. So we at Surrey to ATJ would like to thank Tom Snyder for joining us in our pro bono corner. Don't forget to get involved. We also like to thank Spencer Kotnick and Kevin Williams for joining us for our majority of our interviews today. Also, thank you, our listeners, for listening to this episode of Stairway to ATJ. Be sure to check out the other CBA podcasts, including the Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Getting Lingo With It. Um, some of them are on summer hiatus right now, so it's a great time to catch up on all the episodes that you may have missed, um, and as well as catch up on the other episodes of our podcast. If you have an access to justice subject you would like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Anthony Pereira. Be good to each other out there. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us. Mm -hmm.